Hello and welcome back to Worldwide Weird. I'm your host Linda and today, oh my god, I have a very juicy, tasty story for you. And nobody die, well, a few people die, but nobody gets murdered. So that's always a plus. So my story for you today is about a woman called Rose Marks, who, along with a lot of her family, was a con woman. And I'm reading this out of a book called Confident Women by Tori Telfer. It's a great book and it's basically about all these women swindlers and chancers and just con women. And it's it's really good. Like you're sort of always rooting for them, but you know you really shouldn't be. But you, you, ju- you just can't help it, you know. Like I said, no one usually gets murdered. Before we get started and before I forget... Follow us on World Wide Weird Pod uh, on Instagram. We sometimes post photographs there that are relative to what we're talking about as well. So it's always good to keep an eye on that. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode. And without further ado, let's go into the story. So on May the 3rd of 1951... Little Rose Eli was born into a world of spirit guides and second sight. Her ancestors were Roma, an ethnic group that migrated from India towards Europe about a thousand years ago. They encountered persecution, slavery and they were eventually slaughtered by Nazis. The Roma are actually often called gypsies, which is a slur based on the false idea that they originated in Egypt. The Eli family came over to the United States from Greece at around the turn of the 20th century. Rose herself grew up outside New York, New Jersey, and as was customary in her community, her family pulled her out of school after only a few weeks in the third grade, leaving her almost illiterate. She was taught a different set of skills from here. She was taught how to clean, how to cook, how to be a good wife, a good daughter-in-law, and how to tell fortunes. So straight away she began to work in the family trade. Her mother was a psychic and her grandmother was a psychic and she would be a psychic. So for hundreds of years the women in her family had inherited these skills and Rose called them a gift from God. Rose had her first premonition at the age of nine and it was absolutely terrifying. She accurately predicted her own grandmother's death. When Rose was a teenager her parents picked out her future husband. That marriage didn't work out and neither did the next one. But eventually, her parents suggested a man named Nicholas Marks. Rose and Nicholas were married and together they had three kids and Rose worked as the breadwinner, plying her trade, her gift as a psychic. By the turn of the millennium, business was booming for Rose. She adopted the alias Joyce Michael, sometimes spelling it Michaels, and she'd opened up a place in Manhattan called Joyce Michael Astrology. She and her husband had moved down to Southern Florida where she opened up a little empire of psychic storefronts. She filled these storefronts with family members and employed her sister, her three kids, their spouses and even her granddaughter. It was mostly the the women in the family that actually worked. The men oversaw the work and spent the money that they earned but they didn't work themselves. Rose and her husband lived in a multi-million dollar glass wall, seven bedroom, nine bathroom home on a palm tree lined street 
right by the water in Fort Lauderdale with a cream-coloured 1977 Rolls Royce in the garage and hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of jewellery in the many closets. All this wealth was made possible because Rose was an extremely skilled fortune teller. Despite her lack of formal education, she could read people like a book. Her raw intelligence served her well in the delicate business of cold reading and hot reading and palm reading. As good a psychic as she was, Rose had her own demons. She enjoyed gambling too much. The money came in, but she gambled a lot of it right out again. But in her job, she was just simply put as being the best. If younger psychics got in over their heads, if their clients were skittish or reluctant to give money, Rose would take over and suddenly those clients would be writing checks for 5, 10, sometimes even 15 times as much money as before. It was obvious why Rose was the family matriarch. She had a great way of reading people and an even better way of getting people to part with their money. But the best example of how good Rose was is clear in her number one client, a woman who paid Rose a million dollars a year just for the privilege to be able to reach her on the phone. This client was a lady by the name of Jude Devereaux. Jude Devereaux was a multi-millionaire novelist with dozens of books on the New York Times bestseller list. To a stranger, her life would have looked incredible. She had fame and fortune, but behind the scenes, it was in shambles. She was trapped in an emotionally abusive marriage. She desperately wanted a child, but she couldn't get pregnant. She was in love with someone else. She talked to therapists, lawyers and friends, but she couldn't figure out a way to get out of her marriage and into some better future life. She started to think the only way she could escape this whole mess would be to kill herself. She would later say she'd given up. It was beyond depression. So when she saw the lights blinking in the window of Joyce Michael Astrology, she walked towards them. Devereaux didn't believe in psychics. But Joyce Michael turned out to be an incredible listener, which was exactly what she needed at the time. And so she came back for a second appointment and then a third. And at the third visit, Rose promised Deborah that she could give her everything she wanted. But most of all, a peaceful divorce. It wasn't long before Deborah was seeing Rose four or five times a week. She predicted that Devereaux's husband would finally file for divorce, which he did. She said the divorce papers would be delivered between 4 and 5 p.m., which she did. Or... Which they were. Once Rose called Devereaux in hysterics, screaming that Devereaux needed to leave her apartment right away because her husband was coming to murder her. Devereaux checked into a hotel and when she returned to her apartment a few days later, the men who worked in the building told her that her husband had indeed stopped by and that they'd never seen a human being as angry as he was in their lives. Slowly, Devereaux became a believer, but she'd no idea that Rose had actually hired a private investigator and that's how she knew that her husband was coming to murder her. Rose was telling her things that were starting to come true. Before long, she asked Rose to work for her full time and Rose responded that her fee was $1 million a year. Later, Rose would actually claim that this had been a joke. For $1 million a year, Devereaux would be able to call Rose for guidance at any hour of the day or night and Rose would deliver her a smooth divorce a new soulmate and the baby that she so desperately wanted. Even better though, once the work was complete, 
Rose would return every penny of this annual fee, minus a modest $1,200 for her services. In the mid-2000s, Rose lost both of her parents, her husband and her seven-year-old grandson in the space of about three years. Reeling with grief, she turned to pills, alcohol, gambling and anything that promised to numb the pain. She became a regular at Seminole Hard Rock Casino in Hollywood, Florida, where she spent over $9.6 million in four years. She was spiralling. Her youngest son, Michael, noticed that his mother's personality had actually started to change. She was snappier, she was angry all the time, and he believes now that during this time she had turned into a pathological gambler. Through a haze of grief and booze, Rose continued to work, though she often stayed behind the scenes. Instead of getting clients as they came through the door, she'd delegate and tell her family to direct clients cash through a complicated maze of bank accounts and pseudonyms. Detective Charlie Stack was no stranger to shady finances. He was the only cop in the fraud investigation unit of the Fort Lauderdale Police Department with an accounting degree. And hardly a day went by when someone didn't slap a money-related case down on his desk. On any given week, he was drowning in Ponzi schemes and mortgage fraud. And so, when his sergeant tossed a new case onto his desk in April 2007, and he saw that it was about fortune-telling, he was tempted to roll his eyes at first. But when he took a closer look at the case that had just been tossed onto his desk, he saw that beneath the racket about spirits and premonitions, there were real people who were getting seriously hurt. The case involved a storefront called Joyce Michael Astrology and a woman who was missing several thousand dollars. Her complaint had originated in New York but trickled down to Florida because, according to bank records, that's where her money had ended up. When Stack traced her money further, he noticed a suspicious pattern. There was a spider web of accounts involved and all of them fed into larger accounts for people called Rose Marks and Joyce Michael. The smaller accounts, belonging to people like Nancy Marks, who was Rose's daughter-in-law by the way, were receiving deposits of thousands of dollars, but the accounts for Rose and Joyce took in huge sums. $250,000 here, $300,000 there. Stack couldn't believe it. His colleagues found the case silly though. No one had died, you know, no one was heavily armed, seeing cocaine or raving about revenge. But Stack felt compelled to pursue the situation further. So he marched over to his friends in the US Attorney's Office and the Secret Service and he told them that this case could be huge. And so began four and a half years of investigation into matriarchy of Rosemarks as Stack surveilled her family from Manhattan down to Florida took thousands of photos, recorded their phone calls and sifted through their garbage. He found things in there like Cartier boxes, just weird cast-offs of their glamorous lifestyle. He watched the Marks women pour out Rose's mansion in high heels and short skirts and he saw them drive off in expensive cars. He saw the men jump onto their high-priced motorcycles and they all had nicknames just like mob figures, he said. When you watched them out at night, they acted like they were mobsters. They partied hard, they spent money hard and they lived large. It wasn't unusual for Rose, who went by the name Pinky, to blow through a hundred grand in a single month. The Cartier watches and the Catty motorcycles were paid for by clients though and this made Stack's blood boil. As he began to interview them they'd weep with shame, humiliated that they'd given decades of their lives and drained their savings for absolutely nothing. 
The victims varied, but the techniques for hooking them were largely the same. A grieving, credulous client would leave a personal item with Rose or one of her relatives and then come back the next day to receive the bad news that they'd been cursed. Rose would tell them that the money was the root of all evil and then she'd ask for a very specific amount of money. 5,000 say because 5 is your number. She would explain that she was going to cleanse that money but if the client demanded the money back before her work was finished then the work would be undone and Rose would have to start all over again from scratch. Above all she'd say don't discuss this with anybody now. As the days turned into weeks and months Rose grew more intense. The work would never end. She'd call clients in the middle of the night forcing them to act fast. Run to the bank. This is a spiritual emergency. But then she'd be kind rewinning their trust and then suddenly she'd be cruel she'd say calm down calm down you're getting hysterical she'd then tell them that if they didn't continue the work their lives would be utterly destroyed she'd demand more and more instructing her victims to sell their houses and to share the proceeds from the sale of their yachts she and her family would ask the victims for extremely specific things like gift cards from Saks or lingerie and maternity clothes or Gucci shoes or a watch to turn back time. Dazed, her victims would acquiesce to the demands, no matter how bizarre. Even when her predictions backfired, like when one client's supposed soulmate ended up in bed with another woman, Rose wouldn't let them escape. If her client asked for the money back, she'd tell them that she'd been forced to sacrifice it or... Only Michael, the Archangel, knows where it is. If they really protested, they'd wake up one day to find Rose's lawyer at their door holding a paltry cheque and an agreement for them to sign that said they had never been the victim of any fraud at the Marks family's hands. It was the sort of situation that sounded outrageous until you yourself were found inside of it. To prove that the Marks women could not, in fact, tell the future, Charlie Stack asked some of the victims to feed them false stories. The psychics were never able to tell the truth from the lies. On January the 15th, 2008, Charlie Stack knocked on Jude Devereaux's door. It was a motel door, actually. The romance novelist was living there now, transient and lost. She was dreaming of suicide again. 17 years ago when she met Rose, she may have been miserable, but at least she had her money, her priorities and her health. But now she felt like she had absolutely nothing at all. Back in the 90s when Devereaux and Rose had been working on Devereaux's divorce, the novelist had ignored warning sign after warning sign. There were times when her skills faltered. The much-promised peaceful divorce never happened. Instead, Devereaux's husband took everything in the divorce. All her hard-earned houses, her cars, her money, and Devereaux got stuck with the bills. Rose had advised her to sign whatever paperwork came her way, saying that her husband was going to die in three years, and so the settlement didn't actually matter. But 17 years later, he was still very much alive, worth millions of dollars, much richer than Miss Devereux. Rose's $1 million a year, though, was worth it, thought Devereux. She told Devereaux that the FBI came to her for advice, along with movie stars, former presidents, Prince Charles and the Pope himself. Even the long arc of history bent to Rose as well. She informed Devereaux that she'd controlled the 2000 Bush Gore election recount and the dramatic 1987 saving of baby Jessica from a Texas well. Devereaux continued to write checks and sometimes the checks she gave Rose were blank. Between 1991 when she met Rose and 2008 when she met Charlie Stack, 
She had handed over around $18 million to Rose and in exchange Rose had took control of her entire life. She walked Devereaux through the process of IVF. She picked out both the egg and sperm donor and accompanied Devereaux to her fertility appointments and comforted her through eight devastating miscarriages. She told Devereaux to sell her New York apartment because she had a vision that Devereaux's future child would fall from the 21st floor terrace and die. Devereaux complied and gave Rose the money from the sale. The novelist may have grown sceptical sooner had Rose not worked her greatest miracle though because in 1997 when Devereaux was 50 years old she had a son called Sam. In 2001 Rose convinced Devereaux that her next husband would be the then Secretary of State Colin Powell. To make this romance a bit more believable, Rose asked a friend in Arizona to write letters and emails from Powell to Devereaux, as Rose herself didn't know how to use a computer. The correspondence convinced Devereaux completely, and in one email Powell wrote, I'm sure you can imagine how occupied I am with the potential war crisis in place, but I plan on being in Colorado on the second week of February for a private vacation, and I thought that perhaps I could break away and meet you. Devereaux was so sure that she was talking to the real Colin Powell that she even dared to gossip about Rose to him. In one email she complained that a simple phone call to her psychic was now costing her hundreds of thousands of dollars. I hesitate to call her anymore, she wrote. As the years went on, Devereaux found herself with less and less money. Although she was still writing and selling books, she couldn't top up her bank accounts as quick as Rose could drain them. On October 6th, 2005 in the evening, Deborah was making dinner and her son Sam was playing with a friend down the road. He'd driven there in his little motorised bike. As Deborah cooked, she kept looking out the kitchen window, expecting him to be back soon. At his friend's house, Sam knew he wasn't supposed to be out after dark and so when he saw that night was falling, he hopped back on his bike and drove as fast as he could back to the warm house where his mother waited for him with dinner. But there were no lights in those country roads and darkness was falling fast. The truck driver was going 60 miles an hour, but he never saw Sam. When Sam died, Devereaux collapsed and Rose was right there to catch her. Rose arranged a funeral, the burial and the sale of the North Carolina house since Devereaux couldn't bear to live there anymore. As for the money from the sale, Rose kept it. She rented an apartment in Florida for Devereaux where the author spent the next two and a half years grieving. These gestures seemed like the work of a kind and caring friend, but behind the scenes, Rob was just spinning her web tighter and tighter. And after all, as Rose said, the work couldn't stop. The work was more vital than ever, said Rose, because there was a chance that Sam's soul would be thrown into hell itself unless Rose intervened. Devereaux sat there listening blearily to talk of flames and damnation and some really serious black magic people who've been hired by her ex-husband to curse Sam forever and she just wrote the checks when Rose told her to write the checks. The narrative grew stranger and stranger though. Rose told Devereaux that she'd always known Sam would die, which is why she'd stashed away one of the embryos from Devereaux's IVF procedure eight years earlier. According to Rose, she'd given this embryo to a virgin named Cynthia Miller, and the virgin had given birth to Sam's biological brother. 
Before long, Devereaux would die and be reincarnated into the body of the Virgin, and she would then become the bride of none other than the actor Brad Pitt, because Brad Pitt was having marital problems with Angelina Jolie, Rose said, and to prove it, he, i.e. Brad Pitt, began writing Devereaux from the email address legend0999 at yahoo.com. Later, Devereaux would admit that her willingness to believe was frankly unbelievable. But at the time, she was just in such a fog of despair that Rose's stories didn't look like fraud to her. They looked like a lifeline. She changed her will and she left everything to Cynthia Miller. Her future reincarnated itself. She left her door unlocked, just like Rose told her to, so that once she died, Rose could come in and go through her belongings. When Charlie Stack knocked on Jude Devereaux's motel room door, and told her that he was investigating Rose Marks, also known as Joyce Michael, for fraud. Naturally, Devereaux didn't believe him at first. and She didn't believe anything he'd said until he told her one small but brutal piece of information. Cynthia Miller, the supposed virgin who'd given immaculate birth to Sam's brother, was no mystical, otherworldly vision of the future. Surprise, surprise. She was Rose's daughter-in-law. It was like someone hit me with a hammer, Devereaux said. I realised then that it was all a scam. Three and a half years later, Charlie Stack's investigation was finally finished. On Tuesday 16th, 2011, Rose Marks and her family were arrested and they were charged with 61 counts of wire fraud, mail fraud, conspiracy to commit mail fraud and wire fraud and money laundering. Obviously, because fortune-telling itself isn't legal and either is belief in spirits, etc., the case against the Marks family was purely centred around the money and exploitation. And it was just made more sensational because there was this element of fortune-telling and spiritual beliefs intertwined within the scam. Devereaux herself had proven to be absolutely vital to the investigation. After the weird moment in the motel room, she'd completely flipped on Rose and went undercover. Stack instructed her to stay in touch with Rose and to just play along with her mind games. In the meantime, he was recording her phone calls. And in one of the calls, which would eventually be played actually at Rose's trial, Devereaux tried to ask her for the money she'd given her back. Rose, as always, was ready with the answer. I don't have any money to give you, she declared. What happened to it all? asked Devereaux. It all went, sure it all burned in the fire. What fire? The fire, the 9-11 fire, it all burned, it's gone. Now, obviously, much of the money was gone, but surprise, surprise, not because of anything to do with 9-11 attacks, but because Rose and her family had spent it. The family was accused of other weird things like taking the wedding veil of a victim's mother or demanding someone bring them a bed sheet in order for the work to continue. The indictment also asked the family to forfeit approximately $1,884,630 worth of gold coins. The family would often demand these coins from their victims because gold seemed more spiritual than a cheque from the Bank of America. So eventually all eight of Rose's family members pled guilty and they were ordered to pay back millions of dollars in restitution to their victims and given fairly slim sentences. A few years in prison, a bit of probation and several months of house arrest. Only Rose refused to admit that she'd done anything wrong. 
So in August of 2013, Rose went to trial. Many of Rose's former clients took the stand, including Devereaux, and they all told the courtroom everything about how sad they'd been, how much they'd been in hope, and everything they'd been promised and everything they'd lost. At points, both the judge and Rose's defence lawyer expressed scepticism at the stories, wondering how anyone could be so gullible. Many of these victims were wealthy and educated people. What in the world were they thinking selling their houses because a fortune teller said that Michael the Archangel wanted them to? At one point, when the federal prosecutor tried to argue that Rose's schemes were sophisticated, the judge snapped. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. How is it sophisticated? It's completely ridiculous. Some people actually believed or were convinced to believe that this was possible or true. Now, the stories were in their own way ridiculous, and one of the victims admitted that she'd been conned into buying her fortune teller a vacuum because the spirits wanted a new one. I'm sure they did. The victims, and rightly so, didn't always try to justify their behaviour. They just tried to explain how powerless they felt. Whatever she told me to do, I did, said one of them. Another one said, I was doing things that I would normally never do. I don't take things like this from anybody. I don't let anyone boss me around. But it was as if someone had just spun me around. So despite all the talk of gold coins and vacuum cleaners, Rose's trial was pretty much about the simple question of fraud. And did Rose promise to return her client's money and then refuse to return it? That was pretty much the golden question. And after nearly a month of testimony, it was pretty obvious to the jury that the answer was yes, and they found her guilty on all counts. Rose continues to serve out her 10-year sentence in Illinois. She regrets her behaviour, and yet she believes that she's innocent, according to her sons. Her clients were her friends, and that's precisely what she called them at her sentencing as she sobbed out her apology, occasionally struggling to breathe. We grew old together and shared very intimate details of our lives with one another, she cried. Those once-in-a-lifetime friendships I have lost forever and I will regret that for the rest of my life. Her youngest son, Michael, thinks that something changed when she lost her husband, parents and grandson. I think that she probably started making promises to her clients, he says, and I think that the gambling addiction had a lot to do with the decisions that she made towards the end. That being said, he doesn't believe his mother committed a crime. He thinks she provided a service, a solace even. And anyway, he says, she's not all that unique. There's nothing that she did that any other fortune tellers don't do, he says. I think it just got under a microscope because of the investigation that was going on. In 2016, her family sent a letter to the judge who had sentenced her, begging him to withdraw his judgment. Her offences have been very much a part of our culture, the letter ran. This was her understanding, but that is done now and will remain so, understandably. At the age of 65, Rose earned her GED in prison, a huge accomplishment considering that she could barely read when she left school. After getting her GED, she realised how important dictionaries were and this inspired her to write her own. Using her old nickname, she self-published Pinky's Dictionary on Amazon. It promises to teach its readers over a thousand words translated from English to Gypsy. Her family's request to the judge, as well as all her petitions for early release, have been denied so far. Jude Devereaux and Charlie Stack have become good friends. 
He even introduced her to the art of boxing, which helped her re-enter the real world and start writing again. These days, she writes murder mysteries and spends almost half of every year on a world cruise where she likes to write. When something rotten happens to me, she says, I can often settle my mind by figuring out how to put the incident into a novel. Now that I'm writing murder mysteries, I have a list of people I want to kill. So in the spring of 2019, the New York Times published a piece called Psychic Mediums are the New Wellness Coaches. And then another titled Venture Capital is Putting Its Money Into Astrology. This actually identified the mystical service market, as it's called, as being worth $2.1 billion. While Silicon Valley tries to extract money from crystals, Michael Mark says that in the storefronts where Rose used to run her empire, new fortune telling shops have opened up. It's kind of like the mafia, he says. You get rid of one family and all you're doing is creating an open territory for another family to take over. And somewhere, a sad woman is looking at a little window, all lit up and wondering if she should walk through the door. So there you have it, Rose Marks. Not the nicest woman in the world, but you know, nobody died. And that's, in fairness, always, always, always a plus on this show. So we'll be back again next week for more great stories and follow us on Instagram, Worldwide Word Pod. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you really, 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 really love us, leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Bye.